I wasn't going to say sit down because I never know what Matt's going to do. <laughs> I was going to say sit down, so it's all good. It works. Hey, morning, church. It's good to be here again. I uh, appreciate Tracy's prayer this morning of just giving thanks for this opportunity to, to gather as uh, God's people and to do so together. Um, when I was growing up, my family was, and they still are, um, very conservative and cautious and, and kind of sensible people. And so as a result, they were very risk averse. And so someone like me, who was already inclined to be pretty timid and safe and compliant, I didn't really push into doing you know, more kind of wild and adventurous things. I was very, I don't know, indoorsy, that's a good word. <laughs> But that's probably then why I liked hanging out with Nathan and Tim, and probably why my parents didn't like me hanging out with Nathan and Tim. Because Nathan and Tim, they were the youngest boys of families who were more relaxed, I guess, than, than my parents were, particularly Nathan's family. And so I'd hang out with them, and we'd go and chop down bamboo in the bush with machetes, and we'd climb the power tower out the front of the church, and we'd go in the crawl space under the, under the church building, none of which is particularly wild, but for me it really was, like that's, that's a sign of the indoorsiness, just how, um, you know, that, that those were the things that were adventurous and risky for me. But it's been then that as an adult, like I've had to, I've come to a point of saying I, I need to make this conscious choice to say yes to things that are a bit more risky, a bit more adventurous, because otherwise I, I realise, like I just miss out on life, like if I'm just always indoors, um, then, then I'm missing out on, on adventure and experience and life in, in all of its richness and diversity. And so sometimes though, as I, as I consciously say yes to things, I have to remind myself that I'm not going to die. <laughs> like we were just in Bali not long ago, and they, Bali has this amazing water park, and and there are signs around the place that say, you know, start, start easy and then just kind of gradually work up as you build your confidence up to the, the harder things. That's not what we did. So there's me and Eamon, our, our youngest child, up at the top of this ridiculously tall tower, at the top of this ridiculously steep slide. And I'm here knowing my upbringing, trying to instill in my son, you know, a more greater sense of adventure and risk and, and doing stuff and running through my head literally is, it's just a water slide, you're not going to die. It's just a water slide, you're not going to die. It's just a water slide, you're not going to die. And spoiler alert, I didn't. <laughs> but when I then went up for the second time of doing it, the same thing was going through my head. It's just a water slide, you're not going to die. And don't even then get me started on some of the other rides that were even worse. Um, but even with them, I, had to make, I, I, I made myself say yes. I consciously chose to say yes until there was this final one where like, physically I could feel there was no more yes in me. <laughs> like... I don't know, all my adrenaline had been expended and I was, I was physically done and I could not, I literally could not say yes anymore. But here's the thing though, it's a lot harder to say yes to those risky, adventurous things. It's a lot harder to make those choices as a 40-something year old than it is for, say, my teenage son, Cohen. 
I mean, like, it's, it's scientific reality, isn't it? That teenagers do crazy dumb stuff and don't think anything of, of it. And so he and Eamon loved the water park and they did the insanely crazy rides. I mean, look, look at this one. Um, here, is, here they are, both are going down. And if you look more closely, Cohen is just... <laughs> Cohen's chilled, like whatever. And poor Eamon <laughs> is yelling his head off. See, Co just does it. He doesn't think anything of it. He can just do it. Where I have to make this choice to say yes to doing these things. And there's no photo of me of this one because this is the one where I could no longer say yes. I will also say, even though it's hilarious, I won't show you the photo of Meron and Sahara <laughs> doing this ride because um, I, I, I value my marriage, let's just say that. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure you put it on Facebook, which means it is fair game. Anyway, have, have a look, just, it might be there. <laughs> no, you'll be paying attention to my sermon, not, not deleting messages. <laughs> deleting posts. Now, all that to say, the, the writer to the Hebrews is, is calling the people who he's writing to, he's calling them to make that conscious choice, to keep on saying yes, and for them to make that choice to say yes to Jesus, despite their fear, despite the risk that they have, despite the fact that they actually might die, He's calling them to say yes to Jesus by following him in all of their lives. And one of the things that we'll see in our passage for today is that they actually, they happily said yes in the past. Maybe, maybe they were teenagers in, the, in their faith, like Cohen, and they, they were happy to face whatever came. It, that was cool, it's children, I'm following Jesus, this is all good. And they did it kind of easily then and joyfully then. But now, you know, more time has passed. Now maybe they're far more sensible as they settle into, you know, a middle age of faith. But that's then all the more reason for the writer to challenge them again, to make sure that they don't pull back, but that they keep on saying yes to Jesus. And so in everything that's been written in what we've studied uh, so far in the past 10 chapters, the writer is given, giving reason upon reason to, of why to say yes to Jesus. You know, where for me it was like, it's just a water slide, you're not going to die. He, he's, he said over and over again, Jesus is greater. That's been his litany throughout, that, that whatever the alternative, whatever other options they might consider, whatever um, they might gain or avoid by choosing a different path, whatever things they've trusted in in the past, that Jesus is far, far greater. And so he's worthy of their yes. And then our passage today mark, marks a shift from, from all that has come, which tells us why we should say yes to Jesus, to now how we say yes to him, what it looks like in our lives to live saying yes to Jesus. And, and this is the pattern of, of many of the New Testament letters. They, they start with doctrine and theology, and then they shift to this kind of practical living out of it all, the practical realities. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews has done. And as we approach these final chapters in the letter, that's now the focus. No longer so much the why, no longer so much you know, all the ways in which Jesus is greater, but now how we say yes to him because he's so great. So let's look at our passage. 
in the second half of Hebrews 10. And as we do so, there are five movements that the writer calls us to. He calls us to move in, to stay, which I realize is not a movement, but just work with me, to, to move out, to move not away, but rather to move towards. So let's, let's look. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 19. And it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and, in, and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, just before um, this passage is the statement, sorry, this passage starts with the statement with the word therefore, which immediately takes us back to, to what has preceded it. And just before this statement um, is the statement that because our sins have been completely forgiven by Christ's sacrifice of himself, there's, there's no longer any need for ongoing ritual sacrifice in the temple. But it's also more than that. The, the therefore is pointing us back to all that has come before this verse. All the ways in which Jesus has been proven to be greater than angels, to be greater than Moses, to the ways he offers a, a greater rest in a greater promised land because he's a, a greater high priest with a greater priesthood. He's a greater mediator of a greater covenant, achieving for us a greater salvation through greater sacrifice. And so all of that then lays the groundwork for, for what's to come now. That's all the therefore. And so because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, we have confidence to enter the presence of God. And so the movement that we're first called to is to enter in and to draw near to God. Just to be clear, so those mathematically inclined, I've appropriated the greater sign as now an arrow, so stop thinking in terms of greater if that messes your head in. But just to... Um, just to to focus in on this idea, let's not miss the wonder of what's going on here. Because we talked last week, if you were here last week, we talked about how the physical structure of the tabernacle and the role of the priests and the nature of the sacrifices, how they all work to actually emphasize our, our distance from God and our separation from Him. But Jesus has opened the way for us. He's cleansed us, not just ceremonially, but all the way to our inner being. So we can come to him with confidence, with full assurance, it says. As the writer has previously said, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So here's what the writer is calling us to as a first way of how we say yes to Jesus. We need to enter into his presence. We need to draw near to him who has come near to us and who has opened up that way for us to do so. I mean, these early Christians were struggling to keep their faith. And when we're distant from Jesus, that makes sense. I mean, the, the classic illustration of that, and I remember David talking about it not all, not all that long ago, is when you take a, a hot coal out of the fire and, and take it a distance away from that heat source, it, it immediately cools down until, you then, until it enters back in to the fire and, and heats back up. So, so being distant from Jesus 
makes it hard for us to keep our faith, but, but let's make it more relational. You know, while I, I stay up here on stage, I can't hold my wife Maren's hand. Why not? Because I'm distant from her. But if I were to draw near, if I were to take a seat next to her, well then, of course I could. And so likewise, if we're pulling back from Jesus, then our faith becomes vulnerable because we can't hold on to him from a distance. So because Jesus is so great, and because he's opened the way for us to do so, the writer calls us to, to say yes to Jesus and to pursue him, to draw near, to enter into his presence. And doing so, moving in towards him, will help us with the next movement that we see in verse 23, where it says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And so here our movement is simply then to, to stay to stay with Jesus as we hold unswervingly to the hope we have. And, and notice how what, it, what the writer says in this sentence. We are called to hold on for or, or because he who has promised is faithful. In, in other words, it's saying we can hold on because God will. We can hold on to him because he is holding on to us. We can stay with Jesus because he will stay with us. He is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to the end. He is faithful through all things. So we can hold on to him. We can stick with Jesus. We can stay with him because he is faithful and true. And look at the description too. It tells us to hold on to him, hold on unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Now, if you're riding a bike or, or even driving a car, when is it that you swerve and sway on the road? <laughs> Speaking from current experience, really? But exactly, you, you swerve. Well, there, there's two times. One, when you're looking around at other things and potentially avoiding hazards. You, know, you, you suddenly find yourself on the other side of the road because all of your lane is a pothole. Or, or because you, you're just distracted and you're not paying attention. You're just off with the fairies and before you know it, you're, you're drifting. So the call for us then is to stay fixed on Jesus, which sounds a lot like what we hear in, in chapter 12, to, which says for us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So to hold on to him, stay focused on him. So we move in to draw near to Jesus and then we stay faithful and focused on him. And then we're called to move out from ourselves to others. Verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good, good deeds, not, meeting, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, so far I've been talking pretty individualistically. You know, that me as an individual Christian, that, that I need to draw near, near to Jesus and I need to hold fast to him. But that's actually not how the writer to the Hebrews speaks. Notice that it was addressed to brothers and sisters. And it says that we have confidence to enter the most holy place and we have a great priest. And so the call has been for, for us, let us draw near, let us hold unswervingly, and now let us consider. In other words, 
we say yes to Jesus together. Undeniably, there's a necessary and an important place for personal faith, but it's lived and expressed and supported and and upheld with others. And so the writer calls us to move out from just ourselves and our own lives to consider how we can provoke or arouse in others acts of love and of goodness. And we most naturally do this when we meet face to face. Remember, they didn't have... They didn't have phones to to send each other an encouraging text. They met together, and in that context, they would encourage one another. This is one of the reasons why we then value corporate worship through song so much. When we were in the height of of COVID and lockdown and not meeting together, one of the, the things that people most often expressed that they missed was corporate worship. And... And, and the question is, you know, why? What is it about singing together in church that was the thing that, that made it stand out um, that they missed so much? Because, I mean, you can just as easily, if it's just about singing and, and worshipping God in, in that way, I mean, you can do that just as easily in your car or in the shower or, or whatever. Like, like, why do you have to come to church for, for that experience? What is it about the gathered church singing and singing together that they missed? And as I reflect on, on this passage, I believe it's the encouragement that comes from, from doing it. Because when you hear the church sing, man, that's encouraging. And that's why the seats up the front are better. Because it, if you're in the second to last row at the back, you only have one row of singers behind you. But if you're up the front, you've got the whole church behind you. You can hear all of them singing. You know, last week, Josh was in the drum box, and, and so he's already kind of enclosed in that, and he had, you know, the in-ear microphone um, monitor things in, and he could hear your voices over all of that. When you hear the faith and the worship of the gathered church expressed vocally, powerfully, loudly, it pumps you up, and you're, you're encouraged, and your own faith is bolstered. So, I expect next week, front rows, people. Don't even get me started about the back row, McKinley's. Because <laughs> all you hear then are the sound guys, and they, they're actually at the back for a reason. Uh, but it's not just about singing, though, is it? Singing's not the only way that we encourage one another as we are gathered together, though, though that's one way. It's all the ways in which we come alongside one another and, and, and enter into each other's lives. It's all the ways we, we pray for one another in our struggles and in our joys. It's the ways we set an example for others to follow in the words that we share with them and in the lives that we live. And it's the ways in which the whole is so much greater than all the individual parts. Now, understandably, uh, undeniably, I should say, the gathered church does not always live up to the vision of it. The reality is church can be dull and boring and irrelevant because they don't do the songs I like or, or the book that they're preaching from, it doesn't connect to my life or 30-minute or more monologues, that's, that's not how I learn. There's no kids' church you know, during the holidays, and so I'm too distracted. You know, whatever the complaint is, we can excuse ourselves from the gathering 
But the writer calls us to not give up meeting together, not because of what gathering does for us, but because of what we can do for the others that we're gathered with. He says, don't give up meeting together, not because of what you get out of the experience, but because of what you can give to the others who are there. and, And the thing is, as we do all that, as we give encouragement to others, chances are, as we all live this out, we will actually receive the encouragement that we're after as well. We're to move outward from ourselves and to consider others and to spur them on. And as we do that, as we all do that, we ourselves actually receive the encouragement. And as we are helped, as we help others, um, we are helping each other to keep on saying yes to Jesus. Now, as the passage continues, it kind of seems like it changes topic or, or direction. But remember, this, this whole book is an encouragement to stick with Jesus, to continue to live saying yes to him through all things. And so in what comes now, that, that theme is continued with our movement now to not be away from him. And so, verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, then no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, one of the parts of this passage that we get stuck on is that first sentence. That if we deliberately keep on sinning, that there's no sacrifice for sin left. So does that mean that because I, I, I consciously chose to let those words out of my mouth in, in anger, even though I knew that I shouldn't, that I'm forever damned? Does that mean that, you know, caught up in the group of an, of an addiction and, and getting drunk every night, that there's no hope for me? Does that mean that when I saw that homeless person and I, I deliberately turned away from them, even though I really felt in my heart that I should have helped them, does that mean that Jesus is done with me? I want to say, to, to put you at your ease, no, I don't think that's what this passage is saying. Which is not to say, keep on deliberately sinning. Um, it's still not a, a license for us to consciously choose to sin at will. But it is to clarify what is being spoken about here. Because the issue is the keeping on in deliberate sin. To persist in open rebellion against God. To be deliberately, consciously, consistently moving away from him. Kind of functionally rejecting Christ, regardless of what we profess with our our mouths. And we see that when we look at the Old Testament scripture that's alluded to. um, When he writes about those who reject the law of Moses. And the reference is Deuteronomy 17. 
And it says there that if a man or woman living among you in one of the towns the Lord gives you is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God in violation of his covenant and contrary to my command, has then worshipped other gods, bowing down to them or to the sun or the moon or the stars in the sky. And when this has been brought to your attention, you must investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, take the man or woman who has done this evil deed to your city gate and stone that person to death. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death. The the issue is worshipping other gods. When God's people, saved by God, provided for by God, led by God in the land that had been promised to them and then given to them by God, when these people reject God by worshipping other gods. They're moving away from God to, to lesser things and that's what led to a judgment of death. And so when the writer to the Hebrews talks about those who deliberately keep on sinning, he equates it to to such idolatry. But actually it's even worse because Jesus has achieved for us a greater salvation and initiated a greater covenant. He's talking then about those who have thrown away your confidence from verse 35 in Christ, who are looking elsewhere, choosing to live in a way that moves away from him and so they are trampling the Son of God underfoot. John Cowan, the Protestant reformer, says this uh, about this passage. He says that the apostle, the, the writer, describes as sinners, not those who fall in any kind of way, but those who forsake the church and separate themselves from Christ. There is a great difference between individual lapses and a universal desertion of this kind. And so he says that there's no offering left for those who reject the death of Christ because such rejection does not come from some particular offense but from a total rejection of faith. And so the writer is telling us, don't move away from Jesus. No matter how hard it gets to follow him. And remember the context is one of persecution and exclusion because of faith in Christ. No matter how hard it gets to follow him, still stick with him. Because the consequences of not doing so don't bear our consideration. And so he reminds them then of how in the past they've said yes to Jesus, even when it was hard. And so he encourages them to continue to do so. Verse 32. Remember those earlier days uh, after you'd received the light when, when at those times you endured in great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You endure it in the past. You stuck with Jesus then, so do so now. And with that last sentence too, don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. I think we come to our last movement. Because rather than moving away from Jesus, we are then encouraged to move toward him and to receive the fulfillment of his promise. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. 
end, my righteous one will live by faith and, I will, and take no pleasure. I will take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we belong to those who have faith and who are saved. We are not those who shrink back. We are not those who pull away, but rather we are the opposite. We are those who press forward and who move toward Jesus, who live consistently by faith and so continually we say yes to him with our lives. And in fact, that, that last sentence, that the, in that last sentence, the writer is identifying the readers with the heroes of the faith that he will list in, in the next chapter, in chapter 11, that we'll consider next week. These, these heroes, you know, chapter 11 is this long chapter of name after name after name of heroes of the faith. But as we saw in our study of Judges, not all of these heroes are actually that exemplary. They're, they're very ordinary people. Yet they lived their lives moving toward God and the fulfillment of his promises. All these people, they were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things that were promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Instead, they were longing for a better country, for a heavenly one. And so therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In other words, their present life may have been hard, but they had a greater future ahead of them and they kept on moving towards that by continually saying yes, yes to Jesus. Really, when we look at this list of movements that we've considered through, through these verses, we could actually just summarize it with just one word with to to live all of our life with Jesus saying yes to him in and through all things and as we do so as we live with Jesus we will we will endure we'll persevere we'll get through what is before us but not only that we will experience the greater fuller abundant life that Jesus came to offer us both both now and for eternity and so let's continue with Jesus because Jesus is so much greater. Let's pray to him now. Lord God, we want to thank you for your word and in particular this word that we have just considered. We thank you for how Hebrews has been showing us time and time again just how, just how great Jesus is how worthy he is of all of our lives, all of our faith, all of our trust, all of our following. And now then we've seen these movements that kind of tell us how to live with him. So God, help us to respond to your call and your invitation to draw near to you, to come with confidence and with boldness because of what Christ has done. Help us to stay with you, holding unswervingly to the faith and the hope that we profess, not being distracted, not being caught off guard by uh, other things, but holding on. And may we then too move, move out from ourselves to encourage one another as, as we behold you and follow you and enter into you and, and hold on to you. May we 
come alongside others to encourage them to do the same. May you protect our hearts, God, to not ever move away from Jesus, but always only ever towards him. That we would live our life with Jesus, who lives his life with us. And so, at this point then, God, we want to say thank you again for Jesus. We thank you for his spirit that lives within us. And may we then just live with him, saying yes to him in all things, in all of our lives. We pray this because it's our our desire, because we know how good he is. And so we pray this in his name. Amen.